0: Have you ever uh, tried to get some nagging issue resolved and found yourself displeased with the answer that you got from the person you had gone to for resolution? And then you found yourself even more displeased when you discovered that that person was the one who had final say, final authority. I came across a, a humorous story on a discussion forum about adventures in retailing. Uh, and it was an account... On kind of on the other side of that picture by a unit manager, a store manager at a big warehouse store, kind of like Sam's or Costco. He said one day, as often happens, a customer came up to him and asked if he would check in the back for a particular item that she had not found on the shelf where it normally was. He politely explained to her that in a warehouse store format like theirs, If the stock was not on the shelf and wasn't in boxes on the pallets above the shelf, then they were out of stock. There was no other place that they kept stock. And he said, this item is not in either of those places, so sorry, ma'am, we are indeed out of that item. And he offered to check inventory at other stores or to let her know when they'd be getting more of the same item at this store. At that point, the woman became visibly upset. She pointed at one of the emergency exit doors and she said, Then what's back there? And the man replied, Ma'am, that's the outside of the store. At that point she became even more agitated and she said, Just do your job and go look. So the man walked over to the door, pressed the latch, stepped out, and immediately the exit alarm, the emergency exit alarm started going off, which he knew was going to happen. As the door closed behind him, he was reminded that the forecast that afternoon called for heavy thunderstorms, and the forecast was correct. He found himself standing behind the store in a torrential downpour. So he walked all the way around this very large warehouse store, because he didn't have a key to the emergency (laughs) exit door, until he came into the front. And then made his way again to the back of the, to an aisle at the back of the store where he had been speaking with this woman. He found her still standing there. As the water fairly flowed from his clothing, he said to her, sorry, yeah, we're out of that item. <clears throat> and he goes on to say in his post that the look of horror on her face was worth every second of it. <clears throat> Especially when she then demanded to see the manager And he got to say to her, Ma'am, I am the manager. In John chapter 5, the Jews in Jerusalem raised a serious complaint against Jesus. And he was far less accommodating than the man in that story was. In fact, he wasn't accommodating at all. His response didn't resolve their concern in the least. Instead, Jesus made it very clear to them that what was really at issue was life and death, their life and their death. And he made it clear that he was not accountable to them to give them an acceptable response to their accusation. Instead, those Jewish leaders were accountable to him, accountable for their very lives. And based on all that Jesus says in this amazing passage, that same accountability applies to everyone. Everyone in this room, it applies to you just as it does to me. This passage cuts through all the nonsense and it goes directly to the single most important question that every person must answer. And that question is, how will you respond to Jesus Christ? The passage makes it clear that the God who created you has set before you one of two possible outcomes for your existence. And the only one who has authority to determine which of those outcomes applies to you is Jesus Christ. I want to first establish a little bit of context. Our text this morning is that that we're going to look hard at is verses 18 through 30, but it's important to understand what came just before it. The setting is in Jerusalem on a Sabbath day, and... Jesus had just healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. I'm just going to get that out of the way for a second. And he told the man to take up his pallet and walk, which the man immediately did. Now, this all happened just outside the temple compound. And when the Jewish religious officials learned about this healing, they confronted the man who had been healed and said to him, it's the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. That's great. Set of priorities there. And after some discussion, and then after Jesus spoke to the man again, and the man figured out who he was, he went and told the Jewish leaders, that the healed man went and told the Jewish leaders who it was that had healed him. And so they came and sought out Jesus. And verse 16 says, And for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. What things was Jesus doing on the Sabbath that had caused them such angst? Well, a couple of things. First, by healing a man on the Sabbath, Jesus had in their eyes broken the prohibition against working on the Sabbath that's found in the Law of Moses. The penalty for working on the Sabbath was death by stoning. Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 to 17. Numbers chapter 15. 32 to 36, the Numbers passage actually records an incident where a man was stoned for violating the Sabbath. But of course, Jesus had also commanded the man that he healed to take up his pallet and walk. So not only in their eyes had Jesus violated the Sabbath, he had commanded some other guy to violate the Sabbath. The response that Jesus gave to the Jewish leaders was anything but a confession of guilt or an expression of remorse. In verse 17, he answered their accusation by saying, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. That didn't make him any friends among the Jewish authorities. Verse 18 says, For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. The Jews referred to God as our Father, not my Father. They took Jesus' words in verse 17 to mean that he was claiming a special relationship with God the Father. In fact, they concluded that he was making himself equal with God. For Jesus to equate himself with God if he was not would be the height of blasphemy. Satan didn't even go quite that far. Satan said, I will be like the Most High God. The kicker is that the Jewish religious leaders were exactly right about what Jesus was claiming regarding himself. Their error was not that they misunderstood his claim. Their error was that they took a true claim to be false. And in the same scenario, uh, or this same scenario happens a number of times during Jesus' earthly ministry, especially recorded in the Gospel of John. In John 8, 58, Jesus said to a similar group of Jewish officials, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. You know where that name came from? Exodus chapter 3, when Moses met Yahweh on the Mount, on Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai. And God, He said, who am I to say is sending me to, to go talk to Pharaoh and free the Israelites? And God said, I am. And so they picked up stones to stone Him to death in John 8 as well. In John 10 verse 10, Jesus is again speaking to a group of Jewish officials again, just at the temple compound (laughs) during a feast. And he says, I and the Father are one. And the Jews again understood exactly what he meant, and they took up stones to kill him. In fact, when Jesus said, for which of my good works are you stoning me, they said, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. It always cracks me up to see how many liberal theologians are still arguing today about whether Jesus ever claimed to be God. The Jews who were standing right in front of him and hearing his words didn't have any trouble at all understanding what he was saying. It's also interesting to me that in John chapter 5, the Jewish leaders took offense at what Jesus had done, which was healing a man on the Sabbath, and they took offense at what he had said, that he called God his own father, But they never put those two together. They never reckon with the, with the ramifications of those two things taken together. The critical connection between who Jesus claims to be and is and the work that Jesus says he came to do is exactly what the rest of this passage talks about. And it's, uh, it is very, very important for every person to understand and reckon with. This is my outline. I just want to show it to you up front, and then we'll break it down. It's just four points. Verses 18 to 20, the Son's work is the Father's work. Verses 21 to 23, what is the Son's work? He spells it out. Resurrection unto life and resurrection unto judgment. Verses 24 to 26, I believe, focuses on the resurrection unto life and verses twenty-seven to thirty on the resurrection unto judgment. I'll try to show you how that plays out as we go. First, the Son's work is the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is. Verse 19 on, the only one speaking is Jesus. There's no dialogue after that. It's always Jesus speaking when he does the work that he's about to talk about. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus repeatedly and emphatically declares that in all that he says and in all that he does, he is fully and willingly submitted to his Father. In fact, he is acting entirely on his Father's behalf. And right here in John 5.19, he, sp- he makes that very clear. Both Christ's commission and Christ's authority to carry out that commission are given to him by the Father. Both his work and his authority to do that work. In verse 20, Jesus pulls back the curtain a little bit on the relationship within the Trinity And he says, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. By the way, sometime look at John 15 at Jesus' words to his disciples about the difference between slaves and friends. It ties very directly to what he's saying here about his relationship with the Father. God the Father withholds nothing from his Son but he shares all things with him because he loves him. When Jesus said in verse 17, My Father is working until now, and I myself am am working, He was declaring to the Jewish leaders that everything they were accusing Him of doing, He did on the Father's behalf. In other words, Jesus was saying to the Jews, If you have a complaint about anything that I do or say, your complaint is not just against me, it is against the Father who sent me. Or to put it yet another way, He was saying to them, how you respond to me is how you respond to God. And the same applies to you. How you respond to Jesus Christ is how you respond to your creator. Once you understand what Jesus is then saying in the rest of this passage about the work that the Father had given him to do, I hope it will become clear to you, That your response to Jesus is the difference between life and death. Eternal life or eternal death. Alright, so Jesus established that the work he came to do was given to him by his Father. But what is that work? Well, verses 21 to 23 tell us that that work consists of two things. The impartation of resurrection life and the execution of judgment both of which involve resurrection. Verse 21, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. He gets more specific, he gets specific here about the nature of this assignment that he says he has received from his Father and that he has the authority to execute. The first part of that assignment is life. He makes an unprecedented statement here in verse 21. Just as and even so, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he wishes. Now, the Pharisees in his audience would have had no problem with the first half of that statement. They believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. But the Pharisees did, and they were all in with the idea that God, the Heavenly Father, is the one who raises the dead and gives life. But Jesus says, even so, the Son of God is the source of life. He identifies himself first as the source of life, and then in the very next verse, verse 22, he identifies himself as the source of judgment. He says, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. See, in case there's any doubt about what he's saying when he says God has given all judgment to the Son, he he prefaces it by saying the Father doesn't judge anyone. Isn't that amazing? All judgment has been delegated by the Father to the Son. And once again, this statement was unconscionable, unthinkable to the Jews he was addressing. Only God the Father has the power and the right to judge. Jesus drives this foundational point home with undeniable force in verse 23 when he gives the reason, the purpose for which God has given him this assignment. He says it is in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, the Jewish leaders he was addressing considered themselves to be the cream of the crop when it came to honoring their Heavenly Father. But Jesus told them, whoever doesn't honor him does not honor his Father. Now, there are many human analogies to this. Ambassadors, agents, princes, emissaries, people who represent other people. If you work at the U.S. State Department and you show disrespect toward a visiting ambassador from another country, you can be assured that the leader of that country will take that as a personal insult. But there is no analogy in human experience that comes close to what Jesus is saying here because there is no equality of persons that comes close to that which exists in the Trinity. The Jews rightly understood from Jesus' words in this passage he was not merely claiming to represent God. He was claiming to be God. And Jesus told them that if they refused to honor him, they were refusing to honor God the Father. So he was simply confirming what they were concerned about. Beloved, there is no way around Jesus. The next... Two sections I want to sh- kind of show you how I arrived at this part of the outline are resurrection unto life, which is even now verses twenty four to twenty six and resurrection unto judgment verses twenty seven to thirty that 's maybe a little unorthodox way of looking at this passage uh, you 're f- free to to take it or leave it here 's why i why I did it that way verses twenty four to twenty six and the next passage, both mention life and judgment. But there's a difference in focus and emphasis in those two sections. In 24 to 26, life is the focus. And in 27 to 30, judgment is the focus. Both of those end with a statement about the authority that Jesus has to give to to execute each of those. Verse 24 the son has life in himself, even so he gave, the, as the father has life in himself, even so he gave the son also to have life in himself. And at the end of the next section, verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. All right. So that's how I came up with this outline. First, uh, the next point is resurrection unto life in verses 24 to 26. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. And then he says, Truly, truly, I say to you. By the way, every time he says that, that means pay attention. This is important. An hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. Who receives the life that Jesus is talking about john five twenty four was one of the first verses, first verses that I memorized when I trusted Jesus as my Savior when I was sixteen years old because it is such an amazing verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed already out of death into life. What a promise. Who possesses that life? Well, he says, the one who hears his words and believes him who sent me. John 3.16, you all know it. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There are many, many verses like that not just in the Gospels. You hear, and you believe, and he saves you. It is faith in the one who died to pay the eternal debt of your sin and who was raised from the dead proving that that payment was both effective and acceptable to God. That faith, that simple trust, identifies you as the redeemed of God. When does eternal life start? In John 5, 24, Jesus says, for the one who hears and believes, it starts now. And then he makes a very interesting statement in verse 25. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. He's talking a lot about resurrection in this passage, but not just the the resurrection of the body. He's talking about the regeneration of the soul. And that happens even now. The resurrection of the body, that's going to come later, and it'll be grand for those who are rightly related to him. It won't be so grand for those who aren't. But there is life out of death even now. And I believe that's why he says... Uh, that it now is. In John 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus was talking to Martha, Mary's sister. And he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he said to her, Do you believe this? And I say to you, Do you believe this? He shall live even if he dies, and he shall never die. See, <laughs> the death of the body is not the beginning of life, and it is not the end of life. It is just a transition. And for us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, death is its just a step. Now, this is really, really important, because there are far too many professing Christians who... Treat faith in Jesus as if it's an all-expenses-paid ticket to heaven. If you're already a believer in Jesus Christ, are you just biding your time until you get to enter into the life that he says he gives? If that's your understanding of the gospel, it's a false understanding in this regard. It is a violation of what Jesus actually said about the life that he gives to all who believe. First, it's a violation of when he said it starts. And secondly, it's a violation of what he said it is. If eternal life starts now, not later, as John five twenty four declares, isn't that supposed to make a difference now, not just later? Surely there's more to life than waiting for a resurrection body and the the way we understand what that more is is by getting Jesus definition of what life actually is. And in his high priestly prayer the night he was betrayed into the hands of those who would kill him he said in John 17:3 this is eternal life. You ready? This is eternal life that they may know You, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Life is the knowledge of God, the intimate, personal, life-giving, life-changing knowledge of God himself. We who belong to Christ are not waiting for that life. We have it. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, he has become your life, and your relationship with him now defines life for you. That's That's the essence. That's the heart of it. And so the quality of your relationship with him determines the quality of your life, period. Nothing else determines the quality of your life, just that relationship. Every other measure that you may come up with to gauge the quality of your life is a a false measure. I believe the reason that so many Christians don't look or act that much different than non-Christians is because they're simply not laying hold of that which is life indeed daily. Jesus said, You have already passed out of death into life, so what are you waiting for? How do you lay hold of that life daily? How do you avoid becoming distracted by the things that don't constitute real life? In verse twenty six, Jesus again uses the phrase phrases just as and even so. To connect his work with his authority. He says, Just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave also to the Son to have life in himself. What does that mean, life in himself? That's a curious turn of phrase. But when Jesus says he has life in himself, he's not saying that he merely has an excellent quality of life that's better than ours, so he can improve our life. That's true, but that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that he has the power to preserve life, that he can keep us from dying. That's true too, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying that he is the source of life. Life comes from him because it starts with him. The only way men can get life is from the one who has life in himself. On a sunny day... The atmosphere around us and above us and the ground beneath us is lit up brightly. But neither the atmosphere nor the ground is the source of the light. The source is the sun. And if you are indeed alive, the life that you possess doesn't come from you. It comes from the sun. S-O-N. And if we try to go to any other source to find life, we will simply never have it. He is the only life. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, people have all kinds of substitutes, uh, crummy imitations like financial success. Uh, For some, uh, it's just fulfillment of their their senses, their sensual desires. So it might be drugs or sex or, uh, you know, ex-games, X you know, extreme sports or whatever. And I'm not saying extreme sports are inherently evil or anything. But people find all manner of things to set their sights on as if that's life. And for some people, it's a husband or a wife that they see as the, the source of life. For some, it's a child. One of their children, or all of their children, they say, the light of my life. And so when financial success turns into financial uncertainty or maybe even financial ruin, their life is in a shambles, it's a wreck. When a man whose wife has been the focus of his whole existence grievously disappoints him or even walks away from him, his whole reason for existence is shattered. When a mother's all-consuming efforts to raise her children runs into the wall of a child's rebellion, she feels like her life has lost its meaning. Some mothers feel that same desperate sense of loss even when a loving and generally obedient child simply grows up and moves away. The world is filled with people who are looking for life in all the wrong places. Until we come to the source and stay with the source, we will not find life and we'll be looking in vain there's there are two parts to Jesus' work that are described or laid out in this passage the first is resurrection unto life, real life starts now for those who believe the second is resurrection unto judgment in verses 27 to 30 verse 27 says he, the father, gave him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. What does that mean, Jesus is the son of man, and how does that connect with God giving him this authority to to judge? Well, Jesus has many names and titles in the New Testament. The most common, of course, is Christ, like 400 times. That means the anointed one, Messiah. It's the New Testament equivalent of Messiah from the Old Testament. He's the king that was promised. He's He's the one in whom all of whom all the prophets spoke. <clears throat> but in the New Testament there are also three very frequently occurring titles used of Jesus Christ that contain the word son: Son of God, Son of David, and Son of Man. Of those three occurrences which would you expect to find the most often in the New Testament? Well here are the numbers. Son of David is used of Jesus sixteen times, Son of God. 43 times, and son of man 81 times. So it's probably important for us to know what that phrase means. By the way, there are only three times in the Bible that the phrase a son of man is used in reference to Christ, and they're all visions. Uh, And the phrase is always this, one like a son of man. Uh, Daniel is the first, Daniel 7.13, a pre-incarnate vision of Christ Uh, Revelation one thirteen and 14.14 both John's visions of Christ and the point of that phrase one like a son of man is they're describing how he appeared not who he is every time in the New Testament that the Bible uses son of man as a title for Jesus it has the word the in front of it 81 times the son of man how does that work Jesus is never called a son of God. He's called the son of God. The monogonase. The uniquely existing son of God. He's never called a son of David. He's called the son of David. Because he's the one that all the prophets talked about. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He's the perfect and preeminent king who will reign on the throne of David in perfect righteousness and justice from then on and forevermore, Isaiah 9. And he is not a son of man. He is the son of man. He's the perfect and preeminent son of man. In Leviticus 19, 2, God said to Israel, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. And there is only one man who has fulfilled that requirement and that man is Jesus Christ. Because he is the sinless man He is the perfect expression of God's intention for man. And that is why he alone is qualified to judge the rest of us. And he's the only one who will. It's all given into his hands. There is no way around Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, Peter addressed a group that included the very most powerful and respected leaders among the Jews, including Annas, the high priest, and a few other guys who were in the of the high priestly descent. At the time that Peter spoke the words I'm about to read, he and John were under arrest in the custody of those men to whom they were speaking. And after reminding them that they had crucified Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth who was the chief cornerstone, the one that they rejected, He said in Acts 4.12, this is Peter speaking, he said, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. You cannot go around Jesus. You may call that intolerant. You may call it closed-minded. You can call it whatever you want. But if you don't call it the truth, it's still the truth, and you're still accountable to it. No, you're still accountable to Him. God gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Verse 28 points to a future event. It says, Do not marvel, for an hour is coming. And this time it doesn't say, and now is. It's talking about something that's going to happen later. An hour is coming in which all who were in the tombs, how many? All who are in the tombs shall hear his voice. Now there's hearing and there's hearing. He talked before about those who hear his voice and have life. That's the hearing that equates to heeding. It's not a different word, it's just a different meaning. They hear him and they follow him. Jesus said John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Others are gonna hear and they're gonna come up out of their graves. He says, do not marvel for an hour is coming when all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good, and the word deeds is not in the Greek, those who did the good to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. The reason we won't stay in the grave is because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He was raised bodily, physically. And we will be too by his doing." The death of the body is not the final estate of the soul. If you're not part of the resurrection unto life, you will be part of the resurrection unto judgment. And with nothing more than his spoken word, Jesus will call forth each and every person who has died, and they will come up from the graves. And we could get distracted trying to sort out exactly how this fits with other passages that talk about judgment. I'll just tell you personally, I think the focus here is on the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. But I'll let you worry about that. I don't want to, to get us off on a rabbit trail. Here's the point, because he's making a point, And it's straightforward, and it's universal. His point is you are either resurrected unto life or you are resurrected unto judgment. And everyone will fit one of those two categories. And he alone controls both. There will be no middle ground. There will be no benign, harmless rest. There will be no annihilation of the soul. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. No purgatory, no reincarnation, no oneness with the universal essence, no second chance, eternal life or eternal judgment which resurrection will it be for you? If verse 29 was here all by itself, I'll put it back up, it might cause some confusion. It might make you think that your good works or the absence of good works would determine whether you are resurrected to life or resurrected to judgment. But fortunately, verse 29 is not by itself. It's in a context. And in that context, uh, just before this, in verse twenty four Jesus said truly truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. We already cited john three sixteen in the next chapter, chapter six John is ag- again Jesus is again very direct about what the good is that ensures that a man will be resurrected unto eternal life, and it 's not his good works John six verses twenty seven to twenty nine after feeding the 5,000, they followed him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they were waiting for more food. And he said to them in verse 27, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give you. And then he talks about this authority again. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. And they said therefore to him, uh, Therefore to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said to him, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. John 6, verses 39 and 40, Jesus said, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me... Did you know you're, if you're a believer, you're a gift from the Father to the Son? Did you know that? Of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. And then the next verse is exactly parallel to that one, and it explains it. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. It's not an if. It's a certainty. The only good that will save us is the goodness of our Savior, who poured out His blood at the cross, His righteous blood, to pay the eternal debt that we owed to a holy God because of our sin and then covered us with his righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Second Corinthians 5, 21. It's right in there somewhere. The only good that will save us is the goodness of our Savior it's not our righteousness that makes us acceptable to God, it's His. (laughs) It's all about Him. It is not about us. Every man, every child, every woman, your response to Jesus Christ identifies you either as one set apart for resurrection unto life or for resurrection unto judgment. How does a person get the resurrection unto judgment? Well, that's easy. <laughs> Just do what you started doing. In John 3.18, we know John 3.16, but a couple of verses later, Jesus said, He who believes in him, Jesus, is not judged. But he who does not believe in him has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Our works. Our deeds have already condemned us. In light of God's perfect holiness, even your very best work is seen by God as filthy rags. In Isaiah uh, sixty-sixty-four, verse 6, it says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us, Wither like a leaf, and all our iniquities like the wind take us away. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, Paul, citing Old Testament passages, says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is none who seeks after God as he must be sought. There is no one who is good, not even one. And then he finishes out and he says, so that every mouth may be closed and every man may be accountable to God. And you know who it is that we will stand for, stand before in that accountability? It's the one to whom God the Father delegated both life and judgment. The only work that will ever save us is the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You can't go around Jesus. You cannot get to God without going through Jesus Christ. If there is only one way, one truth, and one life, and you choose some other way, some other truth, some other life, what you're choosing, according to God, doesn't even exist. It's a mirage. And how how valuable do you think that's going to be to you when you stand before the one who determines life and judgment? If you're here this morning and you have been dodging Jesus Christ, trying to go around him, trying to figure out how to have life without falling on your knees before him and acknowledging him as the very source of both life and judgment. Then I pray with all my heart that today will be the day of your salvation. Doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. You will never have real life until you come to the source. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Do it today. Loving Father, we thank you for the powerful words in this passage, for the uncompromising nature of these words. You set it before us, Lord. It's either life or it's judgment, and it's all in the hands of Jesus Christ. People are pursuing all kinds of dodges and excuses and imitations. Father, but we confess to you there is only one life and one life giver. I pray, Lord, that we who belong to your son will find daily will find our life to be him and him alone. And I pray, Lord, that any here, anyone in this room who does not have that life will humble himself or herself before you this very day and will put his faith in the one who is the source of life and in him alone. And I pray this in his precious name. Amen.